Hello, Ben. How are you doing? Hi, Tom. I'm very well. So we're fresh from slaying the sacred alpacas of British policing last week uh, with another packed episode uh, for everyone listening. Thank you very much for listening. We've had a, another great reception. Particular shout out to our, our Polish audience. I gather that Poland is our third most popular listening country. Uh, I'm particularly mm. in Warsaw. It's quite exciting to hear that, isn't it, Ben? I assume that was Warsaw, Poland. Um, at the end of the last podcast, we said, I wonder if we've got enough material for the next one or the next one after that. And I certainly think we have more than enough material to get through today. I uh, I fear that's right. I, I don't think there's ever going to be a week in which there is not going to be a big slate of free speech news, uh, mm. good and bad for us us to get through. Um mm. Well, we've had some excellent feedback with uh, with last week's episode, particularly uh, the section we did on Oxfam's language guide. So um, you can go back and listen to that. But it, it but it basically it was one of these lists that charities and universities have, have been putting out of saying, you know, don't say mothers, say uh, birthing persons or whatever, all of that sort of nonsense. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we've had a lot of people saying that they've they've stopped donating to Oxfam or to other organisations mm. because they they just feel that they're so out of touch with their with their core mission and and the people they're supposed to be helping. Well, I, I used to uh, donate to Stonewall, and definitely that stopped a few years ago. So yeah, it's been interesting to hear from people. But you, you've got some of the feedback, I think, Ben. I do. Yep. So listener Mark said uh, he was. Uh, he was discovering that he apparently has, according to the woke community, an inner alpaca. Who would have guessed? Mm. But then he he makes the serious point underlying all of this. So this was the, uh, the 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 police using an EDI company that was that was talking about your inner alpacas um, and how we should all be more alpaca-like. Um, but he he goes on to make the serious point that why are the, the officers who make arrests like some of the ones we we talked about last week not being punished and he says this is an abuse of police power with officers exceeding their authority and this was our report that came out last week talking about the uh, the emphasis on edi training and the complete lack of free speech training in in so many police forces in england and wales uh, and then that culminates in the arrests of people like jennifer swain who we spoke about before um, who had a, a selection of uh, a collection of essays taken from her house because they were deemed to be uh, you know, yeah. contraband or, or, or dangerous in some ways. Um, yeah, just not understanding what free speech is, yeah. or the, you know, the importance of Article 10, which I think is is a piece of European um, legislation we're going to come back to again and again. But I think another section that resonated, Ben, was about some of the old some of the things we said about the workplace. And the fact that woke ideology is is crept further and further into the workplace, whether that's the private sector or the public sector. And someone said, one one anonymous listener said, the bit about older workers being subjected to an uncomfortable work environment uh, really resonated because uh, because of woke ideology. I'm lucky enough to be in a position to take early retirement. And one of the key reasons I decided to do so was I could no longer continue to face working uh, where I was work- working. And this is exactly what you were saying, I think, Ben, that it becomes a, an unhappy place to work. And if you can take the early retirement, people are taking the early retirement. I know that's right. And th- it's interesting. That was a segment that actually we'd, we'd not really talked about or planned at all before. Mm. And it, it just sort of emerged in what, in what we were discussing. And it really seems to have 
uh, struck a chord with people. I, I think that's something that really has resonated with a lot of listeners. We've had quite a lot of feedback about that point in particular, that it's not just getting the money right for uh, workers in their 50s or early 60s. It's also about the workplace culture. And so the, the listener um, that you just quoted, Tom, was somebody who was working in the civil service and, and, and he just felt that gender identity belief had become so ingrained was the word he mm-hmm. used. Uh, and prioritised over other beliefs, i.e., you know, you've got to get with the program or else. So it doesn't just have to be that you're you're investigated mm. uh, or, or punished for speaking your mind, but I think it's just that constant sense of having to pretend to go along with something, right. whether it's gender ideology or something else, that that yeah. you might just think is com- either completely barking mad or it's just not your view. And it's um, these endless days or months, isn't it, where desks are decorated or logos are changed and you kind of have to clap along to all of those things as, as if as if you believe in it and your private beliefs are very much kept under wraps if they don't. Yeah. I mean, one yeah. of one of the themes that's come up again and again for us, and, and this is not an original point, but it's the idea of woke as being like a replacement religion. And it seems to me there's just been a complete collapse of secularism, the idea that you're private, personal, religious beliefs um, are are separate in some way from your work or that there are some situations in which you don't manifest your religious beliefs. Um, and it seems that idea has completely broken down. And, and these these views, these what we term woke, and we, we had an interesting discussion, I think, last week about defining woke. Yeah. Um, but this set of ideas are not seen as being controversial by the people who hold them. They're seen as being obvious. Uh, to the extent that Oxfam thinks they should be obvious even to, to non-English speaking, desperately poor people all around the world, um, you know, in their language guide. Um, and and so there's no sense of people feeling, oh, perhaps, you know, that's my own strongly held view. But if I'm a civil servant, perhaps I shouldn't be forcing that on my colleagues. That's, that's just right. there's that that's instinct, right. that sort of secularity seems to have, have collapsed that, completely. That, there's there's little boundary left now, isn't there, between uh, some of these ideas and, and private political views, um, and and not even believing in that boundary seems to be a very curious trend. Um, but we had we had another piece of feedback as well about that definition of woke, Ben, um, from a from a third person. The best short but incomplete definition of woke that I've come across is an authoritarian perversion of liberalism. I do hope that not too many Essex police officers invoke their inner alpaca, going back to the alpacas, as zoologically, it is, of course, nonsense. And alpacas actually don't get on with each other very well, apparently. Um, I didn't know that. No. <laughs> I, that. That's news to me. But it but it appears that the, the, the EDI companies who've been using alpacas as an example have been spreading disinformation, Tom. That, that, exactly, exactly. And I think last week I... Um, I, I I was surprised at that because I did go away and look up the difference between an alpaca and a llama, and apparently the alpacas are the small and cuddly ones. So I'm surprised that they don't get on with each other. The llama the llamas will spit in your face, but the alpacas are meant to be the small and cuddly ones that people like to have as a pet. So um, uh, it's interesting they don't really get on. I would suggest that neither are a good model for police officers in Britain to follow. Right. We want them to be police officers. Yes, uh, doing do. doing the job. Well, one of the going going back to what we were saying a moment ago, one one of the sort of related themes that's come out um, of of some of the feedback has been the hostility that people perceive if they're seen as being on the pro free speech side of of these discussions and the and the free speech 
culture war. Um, and this was something that uh, Tom and I, we we were talking about last week mm. because we both had quite similar experiences of of describing our work in the Free Speech Union. So, uh, for those who are listening for the first time, um, we spend most of our time and and my working week particularly um, helping members of the Free Speech Union, members of the public who are in trouble in some way for speaking their mind. So sometimes it's a university student or a staff member in the NHS or someone working in a private business or in the civil service or whatever. Um, and and this is something that's come up a lot, isn't it, Tom, that, that mm. people feel that merely by expressing a pro-free speech view, i.e. You're not, you're not saying something controversial, you're just saying that people should have the right to say something controversial. Yeah. Even yeah. that is enough to stimulate hostility towards you. From friends, families, acquaintances, former colleagues, it's it's very interesting to see what assumptions people have. If you say, "Oh, I'm I'm working in free speech," and also, I think both of us were quite aware that the that some of those ex colleagues, some of those people we may have um, uh, interacted with, will come with the, their own assumptions about free speech because it is often not very well understood now, and certainly on certain platforms like LinkedIn, constantly we see people and the the nature of the comments, the nature of the things that people are liking um, are are kind of some of the areas we're touching on and having a a debate on about how free free speech fits into them. And we may be taking account of you and going on to another idea of homogeneity. We realize we're kind of scratching at that and potentially challenging some of our own connections and links across social media so yeah there's a little bit of nervousness i think isn't there when when telling people or or even when saying to people oh i work for the free speech union um fundamentally i think people again are not separating political opinions from what free speech is and and it can you can decide to go under the radar you're constantly making that decision shall i go under the radar here not have the difficult decision or shall I just come out with it and say, yeah, I work in free speech and then work my way through all those misunderstandings and through all of those um, confusions that that we, we, we know are going to be there? It's kind of extraordinary. I mean, because there's no other human right that would have a reaction like that. If you said you defended the right of people not to be tortured for instance <laughs> uh, or, or you pick any anything else from uh, you know a, a, any other human right yeah. um i just don't see that you'd have that kind of reaction at all but we've somehow got into this awful muddle where free speech is is sort of right coded or seen as being um a, a cover for some kind of ulterior nefarious motive yeah. and the there there is a, a very profound misunderstanding about about the importance of free speech. But I, I've started to wonder, I think that if you naturally get the idea that you can defend the right of free speech, somebody you disagree with, and you're not actually endorsing their views, you're just defending their right to hold them. If you get that idea, it seems quite obvious. But I think to most humans who've ever lived in most societies, that's not an obvious idea at all. Mm. And I think probably there are just a lot of people in modern Britain, in America, all around the world, um, who just don't understand, just don't instinctively get that distinction. Yeah. And it, it uh, the sort of... Yeah, well, the, the I think cl- uh, one thought on that, Ben, is I think uh, a lot of the time it comes back to the history of free speech. Um, 
you look back at it over the over the millennia and the periods of history where free speech has been properly understood or been at the bedrock of a society those periods are really surprisingly limited I and mean, we talk about athens and we talk about um the 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 20th post 20th century post-war period but in the west but you look through history and geographically as well it's a very limited number of areas where you can say yeah free speech was very much the bedrock of of society surprisingly small so maybe that's I don't know which comes first. Is it the chicken or the egg? Maybe that is almost a default of human nature to try and shut people down, uh, given that it's happened so often. I, I think I think I fear it is. Um, and even when you look at those periods of time it, it, where free speech is tolerated or allowed to some extent, it's generally pretty heavily caveated. I.e., you yeah. have to belong to a certain senatorial class or uh, yeah. you are not on a Hollywood blacklist or whatever. It's um, like Magna Carta was very much the barons, wasn't it? And people say, oh, yeah. yes, this, this was great for everybody, but it was just King John giving in to his barons in Runnymede. So, yeah, like you say, senatorial yeah, it's not, class. It's not nothing. And it's a it's great start. Thank you. We'll take it. But but it but you've got a lot. You've got another eight hundred years to get to 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 a position where. Anyway, yeah, but I yeah. I think the, the 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 point about the sort of tribal um, nature um, and uh, of people and the difficulty in 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 tolerating uh, dissenting views manifested itself very vividly in scenes that I'm sure lots of you listening will will have seen now. Uh, with Posey Parker, who had gone to uh, New Zealand. So she is uh, a women's rights activist who is very heavily engaged in the debate about protecting women's spaces um, and uh, about trans ideology. So she's had this this tour uh, called Let Women Speak. And uh, as you might imagine, that has attracted the ire of the trans Taliban um, who were out in force to basically stop her to stop her speaking in New Zealand a uh, very heated confrontation where she was surrounded by a you know frankly pretty scary looking crowd um and she said that she feared for her life um and she also had tomato sauce or tomato soup or something like that poured over her head um in an image that i think is going to become iconic it i, I agree i agree ben i, I think that um I saw the clips of uh, uh, Posey Parker being led away from that uh, um, field. There were no police. It was just the stewards who were leading her away. The mob was, I, I mean, baying, yes, that describes it, but watching the clip, it, it's almost not enough. And the clip you can see from different angles as well. So you can see the fear on on her face you can see genuine fear and but then you look at as the camera pans back and you see a mob we our first episode was was called pitchforks and pronouns well that was pitchforks that was pitchforks that was a mob coming for somebody and it really didn't it really it really shocked me i i was surprised how much it shocked me and i thought if this was the other way around if someone in the trans community had been mobbed like that, I think the news, the news, you know, the mainstream media would have picked up on it a lot. But I, I'm not sure how much they have. And and by the way, if if there were a, a trans activist or a trans individual who who were trying to give a speech, 
and was stopped from doing so because of violence or the threat of violence or or scenes like this, we would absolutely defend that person's right to make their speech. And we would be calling on the police to ensure that they were able to do that. So it's not about taking a view about about this debate. It's simply coming back to the point we we were just discussing a moment ago about ensuring people can express their views. Um, And obviously the... I mean, I, I wonder if the if the if the positive flip side of what's happened is are these scenes the result of the no debate crowd, the 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 segments of the of the trans rights movement who are saying you cannot discuss or debate these issues? Is this a mm. sign of desperation on their part? I mean, is is that crowd a group of people who think they are winning, or is it a group of people who think that they are losing? Mm. Now, and I if they think nothing. they're losing, do they think this is going to help them towards winning? I mean, yeah. the scene the scene now is has been described as it was as if it was in the 17th century and a witch is being taken off to be burned by a mob. That's how it's been described. That's how it's been seen. I don't think you can look at those clips and think it was anything other than that, really. Um, but the mob again, or the, yeah, whoever they, we don't actually know exactly who they were, but my goodness me. Um, you you know, do they think that's going to be good for their cause when this gets replayed on social media? Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the fallout from or, it is. Or, or Tom, do they do they not care? I mean, maybe mm. maybe, the, maybe the point of this is not about making themselves look good. It's just about terrifying people, and particularly about terrifying women. Um, yeah. uh, and the thing that struck me was it, it's almost like they've looked at the most successful anti-free speech movement in recent modern history, militant Islamism. And they're trying to copy it and they are trying to terrorize people. Um, and so I think that's that is the effect of 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 looking at, at, at those videos of what happened in New Zealand. And it's not it's it's pretty shocking, but it's not mm. the first time something like this has it's happened. Um, I, and she said, I mean, I'll just read you this quote. So I, I, she said, I genuinely thought that if I fell to the floor, I would never get up again. My children would lose their mother and my husband would lose his wife. And you can see, I mean, that's that's not her sort of exaggerating the situation. There is a yeah. thin orange line of stewards protecting her. And mm. you have to wonder if if they were not there, how bad would this have been? I mean, it, it starts yeah. to look like a, as you said, like a witch burning or a lynching. I mean, it it, it looks I, I'm not I'm not really it's, sure there's a limit on how bad it could have been if if not for that very thin line of stewards. I agree. There. I agree with that. And I think that uh, along with a number of very brave women um you know posy parker is 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 very brave but she's only human and yeah. these heroines these heroes um in this case heroines who are putting themselves out there uh and you know what's the title of it let women speak is that controversial now but they are just human they are they are they're going to get broken by a big crowd they're going to get frightened by a big crowd they're going to feel all the same emotions and yet they have the courage and the conviction to go and do that and um i applaud that and i but i yeah i totally understand that quote what she's going through um yeah. there's no denying it and and so that that's that's interesting we got to the point where we need people to show that level of courage to bring this kind of attention to to, to the issue. And actual physical courage. 
not only moral, not only moral courage. And and by the way, I mean the people we're helping who 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 would share Posey Parker's views and who, who've been in trouble at work, and that's still happening now. There, there was an academic over the weekend who was saying that he, he wasn't able to do research on um, the trans debate and and uh, women's sports because it was it was just deemed to be too problematic by his university. So even now, there are still employers and universities who just don't get that you have got the right to dissent from this stuff. Um, And so that message hasn't got got through in the way that it really needs to. And so people are still having to show huge moral courage in those types of situations. And that's not straightforward if you've got a mortgage or rent to pay or children and family to support and all the rest of it. So, Well, it links back to what it links back to what we were saying about backlash. Yeah. You know, with that, we, we were this is this I would say is more of a macro backlash. Yeah, it's it's hit the news. It's gone viral. We were talking about micro backlash, our own mini connections in our own individual lives. Uh, Whichever way you cut it, there is backlash and therefore there is fear injected into this whole debate, into this whole conversation around free speech. And people are saying, I do have to pay my mortgage and I can't put my head over the parapet. It's either it's too risky or why would I? Yeah. And that's why we we've I mean, that's why we're inundated with with cases where we're trying to help people who have done that or who want to do that um but th- this this backlash against free speech i mean it's summed up by the, there was a new zealand academic um who uh, a man who was responding to to these scenes and and tweeted out a picture of some activist pouring what looks like tomato ketchup over Posey Parker, and his take on this was, and I'll quote this, freedom of speech is an important and inalienable human right. Well, so far, so good. And then he goes on, when exercised injudiciously, one must accept responsibility for the consequences that follow. Mm. Mm. So this this is the warped view of of the people who are not listening to this podcast. Um, It's giving with one hand. We, we believe in free speech. Free speech is, is very much at the, the heart of everything. And then it's taking it all away with the next and saying, yeah. but if you actually take that liberty, that freedom, and you use it in this way, then woe betide you. So it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, very, it's very threatening um, way of thinking and a very threatening way of presenting free speech. Um, and I think it's most chilling as well because it it it's wrapped in this self righteousness mm, mm. and this conviction that me and people like me are on the right side, not only of this debate but on the right side of history, and therefore everything we do is good by definition. And you can only get these scenes when you have a large minority of people who think like that yeah. and yeah. who are willing to enforce the the mantra of no debate. Uh, you know, whether it be through censorious HR policies or whether it be through attacking speakers like Posey Parker. And and I think just one 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 last thought on this, because I went away and had a look at uh, some of what Douglas Murray had written about the uh, uh, madness of crowds, because what we saw over the weekend, I think, was the madness of crowds. And one of the points that he raises in the book about why this has happened so quickly you know, that trans ideology has become mm. so embedded, sort of extreme ideology has become so embedded, is because people don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So people yep. will look back at things like women's suffrage. People will look back on things like 
uh, the rights that have come into the workplace, they'll look back on things like the gay rights, the gay liberation arguments, and they will say, well, we don't want to make that mistake again. So when mm. it comes to, to understanding transgender and how we in, embed that into modern society, we're going to be um, we're going to be very sure that we that we let those rights happen with the least amount of friction or resistance. Um, and, and, and I think that may be why sort of the outer circle of this, not the activists, but the outer circle, the people who ought to be more vocal and saying this just is wrong. What we're seeing is wrong. are not saying that because they're worried about that element of it. They don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I th yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, as a result of this, the um, Free Speech Union, I think with with more than 20 human rights and campaign groups, uh, has signed an open letter that you can find circulating on Twitter uh, if you want to read the thing in full, calling on the New Zealand government to explain itself um, and uh, to to, yeah. to try and justify how it's yeah. approached this situation um why she was not able to give us her, her speech and and what what the new zealand government will do to ensure that women in new zealand can speak their minds without fearing the awful consequences that posey parker has has faced and that's great that it happened so quickly i think to get that letter out and uh as always we the free speech union will will try and act as quickly as we possibly can and then follow up to make sure that that, that things are changing but we i mean that brings us on to another item that we were talking about last week, which was the cancellation of Claire Fox. Uh, again, the ideology behind this was, was with trans activists who were concerned about Claire Fox liking a tweet, uh, or I think she actually tweeted out uh, a support for Ricky Gervais joke. And she said that that Ricky Gervais joke had skewered the trans ideology that we've been talking about. But just that tweet from Baroness Fox was enough for her to be uh, to have an invitation rescinded from the Royal Holloway Debating Society. And there's a, such a profound irony here because she was being invited to the Royal Holloway Debating Society to debate the importance of discussion. Uh, so she was cancelled from a debate on the importance of discussion. And uh, why? Because it was Three or four organisations within the university have complained to the student union as soon as the invitations went out and said, we cannot have Baroness Fox coming. And the, the sort of the, the, the drip, drip, drip effect of those protests and those complaints ultimately meant that uh, the debating society itself said we, we we're being put in a position where we just can't have you come along anymore, Baroness Fox, even though we would really want yeah. you to be there. Uh, we've been helping the organisers uh, since this all uh, this whole saga began, um, but doesn't that show again that it's it's not it's not just the sort of content of what somebody thinks, but merely by defending the right of somebody to express their views, that seen as being a morally and uh, spiritually questionable activity, um, and that that alone is enough to invite. Uh, hostility skepticism investigation censure well i what i what i was really struck by i read uh, baroness fox's article and and i think this really underlines what you're saying ben about the separation of between free speech and the the, the topic that you may be talking about and there was someone who had done so much research on baroness fox had, had gone and looked at what she'd said what her beliefs were and got ready 
for a debate, got ready to have to have it out, if you will, with Claire Fox. And uh, she was really disappointed that the debate didn't happen. She was herself uh, a trans activist. And and she said, before this debate was cancelled, I'd thought that cancel culture wasn't really a thing. But now I see it is. And 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 again, you know, yeah. Baroness Fox said, I'd have loved to have debated her. She would have been really interesting debate. She knew her stuff, but we didn't even get the chance. No, and it's it's such a pity. And it's such a wonderful thing when you're that age, you're an undergraduate at university and you have an opportunity to walk into a room and have your mind completely changed about something. And I had, mm. I had exactly that experience uh, down at Exeter. I think it was in 2013. So I was doing my master's degree at the time. And Peter Hitchens came to speak about uh, drug legalisation. So uh, anyone who's followed his writing will know that he's very staunchly opposed to drug legalisation. Now, I walked into that room, I I would say, pretty lazily convinced of the uh, liberal argument that if you've got alcohol, then it's very difficult to say why you can't have marijuana and you can tax it and regulate it, blah, 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 blah. Um, Mm. But the point is, I went in more or less convinced of that and he completely changed my mind. Wow. And he incredibly, um, and I think he's written a couple of times about this since in his column, in an audience of students, I think there were probably 400 students in the room. That It was it was one of the biggest ex-theatres on campus, absolutely packed full. Um, and he convinced a student audience to vote against legalisation of drugs. Wow. Now, doesn't that wow. just show the power of debate and the free exchange of ideas? And it was it was a fantastic evening. That is, uh, it was that's I, I worry they woke up the next day and went, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> that sort of when you're in the room. But hopefully some of that really sank in. It's a question I often ask myself is, when did I last change my mind about something? When was I last persuaded this was right and that something that I thought was right is now wrong or, or, or something slightly different? And I do challenge myself on that. Um, but I, I think that you know, that that is a fantastic little anecdote that you had your mind changed. And uh, we need to see more of it without a doubt, because I, I mean, this is this is this is something I, I've been thinking about as well, which is why do people not actually believe in cancel culture? Why are people yeah. so sceptical about whether it even exists? Um, and again, I don't have a natural answer to it, but I think it's I think it's I think it's a complicated set of reasons that we'll, we may come on to later when we talk about sort of um, the literary background of of people coming through university. But in essence, it's something I find very surprising. Um, but and it's not a nice thing to find out that cancel culture does exist. But when people see open their eyes and see that it's a real thing, you kind of feel, you OK, someone else sees, sees the problem now. Yeah. And I think part of it, at least, is the sense uh, it, well, it's not happening to people like me, therefore it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think a lot of people suffer from that form of thinking. Um, but we, we've had many conversations, I mean, talking about people changing their mind, where um, people have contacted the cases team at the Free Speech Union because they need assistance. And they say something like, uh, well, I didn't really get why we needed a Free Speech Union. I wasn't really sure what the point of this was. I didn't really think council culture was real. I don't really agree with J.K. Rowling. But I've said this on Twitter and now my employer is placed me under investigation or whatever right. the situation is. And honestly, the number of conversations I've I've had with like that 
um, with people <laughs> you who just, have... you could have a pre-recording ben couldn't you of you yes. just saying what you needed to say to say yes. don't worry this is this is you are not alone yeah indeed um but th- th- this question of, of of you know the freedom to change your mind all of that of course depends on the free exchange of information uh, which mm. brings us on to our next topic uh, and the uh, the funding by the foreign office of something called the GDI, the Global Disinformation Index. And I think that, yes, the Spectator reported £2.5 million of taxpayers' money was was being fun, funnelled into this, uh, this organisation, which, among other things, has created a, a list of, of reputable and disreputable sources. Um, and so this is an organisation that, among other things, is, is sort of briefing policymakers and politicians and and so on. Um, And I suspect listeners will not be surprised to know that the 10 most disreputable uh, news (laughs) sources, according to uh, the GDI, uh, happen to be on the right of American politics. Um, And with one exception, the reputable ones were on the Mm. the left or or centre left. Um, So £2.5 million, Tom, is that is that a good use of, ah, of taxpayers' money? Well, that's exactly the right question. That's that I think is since twenty twenty nineteen. So, yeah, yeah it, it's a it's a heck of a lot of money. And I, I got quite curious about this. I went and had a look at the GDI and and tried to to understand how do they how do they apply these algorithms and and categorize these various news sites in in this way, and they use various criteria criteria, which I couldn't find the exact detail of, of, I think they've got 80 different filters that they put these news sites through. Essentially, it seems to me that the the core definition they they refer to is adversarial narratives. That's what they're looking out for. And they describe them as intentionally misleading. And And then there are so many different ways in which they might be misleading, financially or ideologically motivated, fostering long term conflict, social, political or economic, or which under, undermine trust in science. And I thought to myself, because I've built models in the past, so the models that are classifying these news sites, I thought to myself, I would normally try and backtest them. That's to say, what, how would these models, if we went back to the 70s and the rise of Thatcherism, or if we went back to the 70s and looked at the rise of monetarist economic theory, would the sites sort of propagating those ideas get classified as low risk or high risk? That's because they were very adversarial at the time. They were novel. They were there was a, there was a, in the economic world there was an established kind of consensus that Keynesian economics was the right way of thinking. And so the Chicago School came out with monetarist economics. This was suddenly a a very new idea and potentially a very divisive idea, and would probably get classified as very risky. Um, yeah, you know, and and that, that 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 was one thought I had about the back testing. I don't know what, what don't know what you think about that, Ben. Well, that that's a really interesting point. I mean, uh, of course, with the debates about COVID, um, we we've had many many instances of uh, people who've dissented either either from you know questions about effectiveness of vaccines or the effectiveness of mm. uh, and the harms and costs of lockdown and, uh, and so on, um, and the importance of the free exchange of of uh, uh, of scientific ideas, even if they seem 
odd at first. Yeah. Um, and now the, the 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 backtracking with the plausibility of the of the lab leak theory has 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 been startling. It's I think a really good that. example that because I, I, yeah. I think the key thing that these things miss is sub narratives. So we talk about anti-vax or we talk about, um, I mean, it doesn't have to, you know, voter fraud conspiracies or climate change, but it's so clumped together. And actually, you know, the sub-narrative about the COVID-19 lab leak versus natural causes coming from the bat population, um, that that sub-narrative is one part of the discussion. And there may well be misinformation in other parts of the discussion, but this this is a really good example where it's gone the other way, or it would seem to most likely have gone the other way. But there's no nuance, is there? It's like, oh no, no. COVID nineteen is blocked together as one big thing. There's no nuance. You're 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 mad because you think you don't think the the, the normal sort of um, uh, doctrine on that. And I th- I think the point is, I mean, misinformation can cause harm. Of course, it can cause harm. Yeah. But I think when you look at it in aggregate, the much greater harm and cost to society is when you get to a position where where you're saying, well, any any of these dissenting views, any um, questioning of scientific analysis uh, is inherently dangerous. I, I think the harm to the scientific method that arises from that mentality is much more uh, harmful generally to wider society. Yeah. Um and I think this this point about being adversarial, I mean, that's such a strange criteria because any insurgent novel theory, whether it be in economics or science or whatever, is going to be confrontational and, and adversarial. And it might be completely nuts and it might not be true. But but for everyone that that that's that's nuts and turns out to be completely implausible, there's a there's a theory of evolution. And, and I, I think well, I was talking it, last week about about exactly. Darwin and, and you need Darwin's bulldog. You need a Thomas Huxley sometimes to to force through um into people's consciousness an idea that that is unsettling but but then turns out to be vindicated um, and look at the house of commons look yeah. at how it's set out it's set yeah. out to be adversarial look at our justice system it's set out to be adversarial because actually an adversarial approach gets you to the best decision uh it, it might not always get you to the right decision but relative to all the other systems we've tried to sort of misquote Churchill, it gets you to what is probably the best decision for society in general. So adversarial is not bad, quite the reverse. So again, I find it very curious that that was the very hard. And the other thought I had, going back to money, Ben, um, yes, clearly our government has spent a lot of money getting the GDI or working with the GDI to to sort of classify what is disinformation and what is not disinformation. But the GDI itself also has a huge influence on what money goes where. On the GDI, um, the Free Speech Union has asked that this matter be raised uh, in Parliament, both in the Commons and in the Lords. So the Foreign Office is now being questioned by parliamentarians who are on our side in these these debates about, about free speech. Um, and there is some pushback against it. Mm. So mm. we again, I think we talked about this last week as well. Um, we are in a position where we are trying to exert positive influence yeah. and to actually achieve something. So we're not just talking about the free speech culture in this podcast. We're also able to describe what we're what we're doing to try and win it. That's that's right. And 
uh, I think that some of the the complaints towards the GDI have been raised in America. And now, again, as you say, because of some of the work we're doing with the Free Speech Union, we're raising those complaints in Parliament um, here on 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 our home turf. So uh, I think that's that's uh, another positive thing that we're doing. But um, I guess that leads leads us on to uh, <laughs> and uh, the next topic, which I thought was worth raising because you of, want you want to talk about money again, don't you? Tom? I wanted to talk about you're, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right there. And I'm sorry. You know, I can't get money out of my my, my circulation system, my blood system, my, my blood system. But so many articles, so many headlines over the last couple of weeks have been about the the, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and about Credit Suisse being taken over by UBS and currently all everyone's looking at Deutsche Bank as the markets open today. And I was looking at this and it felt for a while very like 2008. I really, really hope that we are not looking at anything like 2008, uh, which was the last banking crisis. But But as I was thinking about this, that crisis back in 08 was the trigger for uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, it all kicked off. And I re- I've, I've actually got in front of me the uh, the first, uh, the, the sorry, the headline from the Times on the 3rd of January, 2009. I don't have an actual copy of that newspaper because it's very valuable. If you can get a copy of that newspaper, it's now worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, I think, because the headline there is Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. And that was actually coded in to Bitcoin when Bitcoin got kicked off back in 2009. So it is forever in the Bitcoin code. But why am I talking about Bitcoin? I'm talking about it because it was meant to be about freedom, about not being subject to a central banking system or banking process. And what unfortunately has happened in in the sort of public debate is that governments have got hold of this and they're talking more and more about centralized digital com- com- currencies. And of course, the, when we talk about centralized dig- digital currencies, we're talking about money that governments can just shut down at whim. So what I really wanted to, the reason I wanted to talk about this, Ben, is, is kind of draw that distinction between Bitcoin which chugs on, come what may. Governments can't shut it down. I've seen I've seen governments say things like, um, we need to shut down Bitcoin. And I look at them, well, I, I, I don't look at them at all because I'm just sat, sat at home watching TV. But I kind of think to myself, what do they mean? You can't do it. Through all of the crises, Bitcoin will just carry on block to block to block, come what may. It's totally decentralized. But on the flip side, when governments talk about digital currencies, central bank digital currencies, they're talking about something that they could shut down. So if they push this out to their citizenry, we really are potentially seeing a bit of an Orwellian nightmare. And so, Tom, the, the, the free speech dimension to this, I mean, for, for, for those listeners like me who don't know the difference between a Bitcoin and a TikTok, the, the free speech <laughs> dimension here is, is is like the PayPal case that that we faced and our founder Toby Young faced and, and many others did as well last year, where PayPal, which is a completely integral part of the modern marketplace, decides effectively, well, we don't like you or we don't like what you're saying or we don't like the fact that you're defending the right of other people to say things that we don't agree with. So we're going to close your accounts without any notice. Yeah. Um and so is that is that what the danger here is that on a on a much larger scale um that these digital currencies can be switched off if a government doesn't like a particular group of people 
It's exactly that, Ben. Now, that when the PayPal thing happened to us, what we were able to do is say, oh, well, we're in a free market. PayPal has shut us down. We can go off and we can work with another payment provider because, you know, there'd be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten payment providers. The big difference here, so that's the similarity. The big difference here is who's doing the switching off and what's the alternative. Yep. The switching off is being done by a central government. And if you're in that country and they've switched off your currency, there is no alternative. And you really are in a catastrophic situation. And and you look at the Chinese social credit system. You say the wrong thing about the president or you say the wrong thing about the party, then you can find actually go out on a Friday night. I can't pay for the round of drinks because my, my credit's been been reduced or shut off. And that, that's the fear here. It's probably worth saying. I mean, if if you're hearing this sort of stuff for the perhaps for the first time, or you've not you've not given a lot of thought to this, and it sounds completely wild and and speculative and implausible and dystopian, um, I, I think it's fair to say that when this happened to us last year, when PayPal just decided, mm. right, well, we don't like you, we're closing your account, um, and taking what a third of our membership, or putting a third of our membership, or something like that, in in danger, unable to pay um and, and trying to put us out of business effectively um that th- this was something that i think was not really on our radar and perhaps it perhaps it should have been um and it, it is now and we're helping a lot of people in, in very similar situations and, and we have um, many open files with with people who have been no platform by uh, financial services of various kinds but i think the, the the point i'm driving at is if this isn't on your radar now and it's and it sounds implausible you're probably in the situation that that we were in just before PayPal did this to us. Um, and I think probably these, well, certainly, in fact, these are things that, that you need to spend some time thinking about, unfortunately. It's a known unknown. I, I, yeah. I remember Donald Rumsfeld coming out after World Trade Center and talking about the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And I, for everyone laughed at him at the time, but he's right. Yes. Even when he was right, the known unknowns, financial exclusion we know the the ones that we we really well there's no point losing sleep over them it's the unknown unknowns because they are unknown um and it's an interesting question though yes after financial exclusion what what else have we missed in this whole free speech area that will be the next attack um and and that will also be a challenge i think i dread to think i dread to think (laughs) Tom, listeners, I, I lied to you a moment ago because I do know what TikTok is, although I've never used it. Um, and that but you don't know on. what Bitcoin is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those things, Tom, when you explain it to me, I understand I'm able to sort of retain the information like a goldfish for a few seconds in my mind. <laughs> but as soon as I have to try and explain it to somebody else, it's completely gone. So you're trying <laughs> ne- next time. Next time we see each other, I think we're seeing each other next week, aren't we? In person, so we we're, are. We're we're recording this remotely. I'm in um I'm in uh semi-rural Wiltshire, and 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 Tom's in London. So we're not in the same room, but we will we will be in the same room, perhaps over a drink, uh yes. in in a week or so, and you can try and explain it I'll to me again. And... <laughs> I'll bore you to tears. I'll bore you to tears, even more than normal. <laughs> um so tiktok there, there was yes. the reason i mention it now um there's an interesting article by uh james marriott in the times in fact all of his articles are interesting and worth reading and he made this fascinating and i think completely convincing argument that uh, liberal democracy depends on people being literate that you have to have a culture of 
of book reading in order to sustain the type of uh, intellectual maturity that democracy depends on. So the idea uh, being that, that in order to uh, engage with and exchange reasoned arguments, you have to have a culture of people who can basically can read a novel. Um, and he gave an example of a lecturer who said that students are no longer able to engage with long and difficult books uh, like uh, George Eliot's novel Middlemarch. So um, this was something that 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 horrified me, as I expect <laughs> it will be horrifying many of you listening now. Um, and also in the news this week, there's been this uh, yet again, we're having to bring up the topic of books being retroactively edited this time, Agatha Christie. Um, and uh, various various edits have been inserted into her work. And so, Tom, it feels like we've come to a point where there's lots of people who can't read books. And for the few that can still read books, they want them to be cleansed of anything that, that might trouble their, their yeah, modern their progressive conscience. Talk about a pincer attack. Hey Ben, both on the one hand, yeah, we can't read, but those for those of you who can read, we're going to take it away. Um, I, one of the things that struck me about that article on uh, not being able to read is it just, and I'm I'm sure you're like me, Ben. You know, you you, you come very much from a reading background. That reading is, in some senses, it, it it's like freedom of speech. It's so fundamental to a liberal democracy where we exchange ideas literacy very much is related to liberty and one of the things that that article mentioned for example is that reading creates empathy yeah so because you have to go through a complicated book with big ideas and descriptions and different characters and you have to understand why character a has done that to character c and why character b ran off in that direction you can kind of work out in real life, oh, okay, so that person didn't respond as I expected. That person thinks something different to what I do. And when you read, you can see why. You can say, oh, there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger narrative. But if you're looking at 20 seconds on TikTok, suddenly yeah. your world is so narrow and so restricted that empathy isn't there. And that's what we see. And it, so. it I, I think that's a great summary, Tom. And and I think reading is the closest you can come to uh, inhabiting somebody else's mind. World. Well, yeah. And I think particularly with novels set in the past, even quite recent past in the 20th century, um, it, it, it allows you to understand where people are coming from. So I, I was talking last week, I think, about uh, I, I've just finished reading the uh, the narrative of the voyage of HMS Beagle, hence why Darwin was in my mind a moment ago. Yeah. Um, and and one of the, I mean, it's fascinating in its own right. So it's the it's the the uh, the log of of the ship's captain um, and Darwin's diary sort of intercut with each other. And because it's so of the moment, one of the things it does very effectively um, is that you completely understand where they're coming from and why, and the the ethical dilemmas of of empire and the complications of Captain Fitzroy, who's who's deeply Christian man and wanting to help raise the standard of living of people he encounters living in absolutely grinding, desperate poverty. Now, mm. of course, modern modern reactions to that are very fraught because we, we now society condemns colonialism. But when you're put in the, the position of being the captain of a ship, who is the master of technology that he knows can change the lives of these people he thinks for the better, and you encounter people who have no medicine, no industry, no technology, 
it makes you confront that situation in a more honest way. It's easy yeah. to sit back and just condemn empire and, and wash your hands of it and say it's all completely evil. But when you're in the point of view of a man in his, it's only in his late twenties, who's having to confront that situation. And it's only mm. by reading that you can, you can get yourself into that position of That's having right. to empathize and understand and be in his, his situation in command at that moment. And follow um, a narrative line. Yeah. From all the different directions in which that narrative line is developed. So then you think, oh, my goodness, yes, I'm this 20. I don't know how how old he was, 25 year old, whatever, 28 year old, whatever it might be, having to deal with this situation in real life. I mean, Ben, you mentioned um, I think you mentioned is, was that um, uh, Charles Darwin? You mentioned uh, Edward Gibbon a couple of times. What would you say is, is the uh, book that's had most impact on you? Well, my favourite novel is Brideshead Revisited. Um, oh, wow. And it, I, th th that's a book I could read a couple of times a year and never, ever get bored of it. Um, and that brings me on, actually, to the, to the question of adaptations, um, <laughs> because there's also been the, the adaptation of um, Great Expectations by the BBC that I confess I've not, I've not watched yet, and I ought to watch it probably before talking about it in any great length. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I see it has been criticised, fairly or not, I, I don't know, um, for doing the sort of very BBC thing of taking a, um, a novel from the 19th century and interpreting it entirely through a 21st century lens. So I don't know if that was fair criticism or not. I ought to go away and watch it. But I, I must say, more a Jane Austen than a Charles Dickens man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know if that's fair or not. But I think what it th there is definitely a sense in which people are less, far less interested in understanding the past and where people come from. So if you look at the adaptation of, say, uh, *Brighthead Revisited*, I think that was in the early '80s, uh, or the BBC's yeah. fantastic *Pride and Prejudice* in in uh, 1995, something like that. Um, they're really deeply engaged in what people um, in the time and place of those novels thought, what, what? they felt. I go back to Robert Graves and the very famous I, Claudius and Claudius, the God yeah. adaptation from the 19, I think it was the 1970s, actually. And I recently rewatched that. And like you say, it's astonishing how, well, first of all, the, 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 everyone in those adaptations became or already was very famous or became even more famous uh, as the years have gone by. There was an, they, they were just a fantastic crop of actors and actresses. Um, but it's exactly as you say, you know, I Claudius Derek Jacobi is talking to himself and holds monologues with the screen and 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 you understand, even as the Emperor of Rome, what he's going through and, and why he's debating this in his family and, and what's going on with that person and why he might have to get rid of them. And you the complexity and the layers come through. Um and you're right, I, I just don't think that kind of adaptation it's all just visual or just yeah it's just the atmosphere that you're made to feel immediately it's very chocolate box now yeah it's not and, got those multi-layers and for all of those wonderful um monologues or, or the narration say in Brighthead, where you have jeremy irons basically reading completely unedited extracts from from the book um you know while that's going on now for a modern for a modern audience who are looking at TikTok on their phones, who perhaps just don't have the attention span. So even <laughs> even if you could get something like that commissioned now, which I don't think you could, 
um, and have actors who respond sensitively to it and understand it and music that's fitting for it. And Jeffrey Bergen's wonderful score, I think, couldn't ever be couldn't ever be topped. Um, mm. You still, I think, would really struggle to find um, an audience. I, I, I'm yeah. afraid to say, particularly among younger generations, who'd, who'd be able to respond to, to historical situations I, I, in a proper way. I think that's right. And and of course, this also then explains why we see so many folk willing to take away from books to take away from. I mean, we're talking about Agatha Christie today, but we've also talked about Roald Dahl and we've talked about Ladybird books, because if if there's no first sort of step appreciation of the depth of some of these lit- literary works, then it doesn't mean much to take a few words away from something or to spin a few words around that or to remove some descriptions here, there or anywhere. And that maybe that also partly explains why, yeah, we can rewrite Roald Dahl. It doesn't matter. Oh, don't worry. Mm. There's, no, there's no loss here if we change Agatha Christie. And it comes from that lack of appreciation of what that piece of art really is um, and how quickly it will fall apart when you take out those bits. I think that's right. Do you remember that awful, um, in inverted commas, restoration of a painting of Jesus? It was it was an Italian painting. I can't remember who the painter was. I'm afraid off to my mind. Yeah. And somebody took it upon themselves to restore it, and it looked like <laughs> I remember this. The, I remember this. It was yes. heartbreaking, but but just the most <laughs> atrocious sort of cartoon type, uh, <laughs> grotesque visage. That, that was um, wonderful. It was, oh, it was, it was, I mean, it, it was terrible. It terrible, was terrible. But, but I think it was in a local village. It might have been Spain. Spain. And she was trying to do what was right. She thought she was doing what was right. And she was restored. Yeah. It and Jesus looked, well, let's just say he didn't look like Jesus at the well, end of it. No. So that's, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful example of, of, of what we're talking about. Yes, it was in yeah. Spain. It was in Spain. You're right. Um, and so what's happening with Agatha Christie is that they're just sort of chipping away at little bits of prose that they think are problematic. And they're thinking, well, you know, a brushstroke here. What difference does it make? Yeah. Um, but of course, it, it's removing the characterization that Agatha Christie builds up in her novels that you see in the in the, the better adaptations. Um, and it, it, it removes some of the misdirection that she puts into into her work. Um, and it's done by people who I think basically can't write. Well, Ben, you remember the, uh, you know, the Peter Ustinov death on the Nile in the last yeah. summing up scene where he gets everyone in a room and he explains why he now knows this is the person who did the murder. And the reasons are these tiny, tiny little things that have happened in the plot. You know, yeah. something was moved here or someone said that. And it's a really good example where changing a word or a phrase could completely change that summing Absolutely. up situation. I'm sure these sensitivity readers are probably not making that link. Well, I, I was looking up, so I was thinking about all of this stuff yesterday um, and, and reading sort of head in hands, despairing about, about these edits. Mm. And I was thinking about her book, And Then There Were None, which of course was was published under a very different title. Um, and so I, I thought to myself, well, I, I can't honestly say that I object to the fact that that is published under the title and then there were none. But digging into it, I think there's, there's a there's a pretty substantial difference. First of all, changing a title is different to changing a text. But also the US edition of that book was published under the title it now has in her lifetime, I think in 1940 or something like that. Um, 
albeit in the UK, the title was only changed after her death, but it, it was published nonetheless in her lifetime under that name. So I think it is, I think it is different to going yeah. through decades after she died and changing how she described her characters, which I think is much more pernicious. And ominously, I saw the Wikipedia plot summary of the book, uh, <laughs> and it has a disclaimer at the top, and I'll read it to you now. These details correspond to the text of the 1939 first edition. And I just thought, is that going to be one of those phrases that just makes its way across the internet, like the the sort of disclaimers you have on Disney films or whatever, which yeah. will say this film made in 2015 is of its time. It doesn't represent modern values. It's exactly no? that. It, it, it's exactly that. And we, I, I, a friend went to the theatre last week to see um, Tennessee Williams, A Streetcar Named Desire, and they had exactly a poster like that saying this this uh, film, this sorry, this play contains language and attitudes and whatever that would not be considered appropriate today. And and going back to that title, I think there would be a consensus. Ninety-five percent of people would agree that, and then there were none. It's is is fine. It's as you say, it, it it's uh, something that was changed in her lifetime. But in any case, I think there would be a consensus. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's change that. But these things are happening behind closed doors, aren't they? These these yeah. changes are happening and people are finding out about them and th- and they're coming out of nowhere. Um, and in the Which, extreme. Sorry, go on, Ben. Well, no, I was just going to say it takes a lot of detective work as well, because it, it yeah. <laughs> I think it takes people literally going through the ebook versus the the copy they've had, you know, 30 years on their bookshelves yeah. and, and, and going through and checking them line by line. And, and that's how some Poirot of these things have been discovered. To find yeah. it. You know, it takes a little bit of Miss Marple to spot it, a few of the little grey cells of Poirot. Yeah, indeed. And I wonder, where does this end, Ben? I mean, we were talking before, what about poetry? Poetry. Now, (laughs) there's the extreme example where every word, every single word is important in terms of cadence and rhythm and meaning. And, you know, a, a great poem opens your eyes to something in a way that you haven't ever seen it before. And you go away and you you sleep on it and then you find you're still thinking about it a week later, a month later. You don't exactly know why sometimes with a poem. And it could well be just two words that have been put together in a completely new way. And then these guys, I mean, it's genuinely vandals. They're vandals riding roughshod over this piece of art and changing words. I, I don't know if poems are yet under attack, but um, that would be um, appalling. The 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 glimmer of hope I have is I I think that as with the case of Raul Dahl, where the publisher then had to backtrack and and is now conceded that it will be publishing two different editions, so that does create the opportunity to vote with your wallet, um, hopefully using real money and not not a digital currency. <laughs> um, but you, you you do have an option to to send a message to to publishers, um, and I hope that the publishing industry is now. That it will have to come to its senses and realise that it's running out of road, that it that it cannot continue like this because people have just, well, I think particularly men actually have just stopped buying books. Um, it, that that's an interesting question. Perhaps we should we should return to. But yeah, um, no. but we, we should we should um, move on to our our next area, which is a bit of good news actually. Uh, we do like I think you've you've reiterated this a few times, Ben. We do like to focus on the good news because there is so much news out there that makes us feel a bit down 
Uh, and this was the response of Stanford Law Dean Jennifer Martinez uh, to uh, a no platforming of a judge in America. This is an America, American case at, at Stanford Law School. And she apologized because what had happened was effectively the judge was was being berated by the Stanford Dean. So this was a visiting speaker, wasn't it? A judge who come yeah. to give a talk. Yeah, that's right. The judge was there to give a talk, but she, he was berated by the Stanford Dean for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, um, sort of given a lecture himself and shouted down and in effect didn't get to give his talk. And what happened afterwards was that the dean sent a, sent an apology to him for the way that he'd been treated. And of course, there was an immediate outcry at the apology, saying retract the apology, retract the apology. But instead of what that, what the law, what the dean did was was write quite uh, an extensive follow up to that uh, outcry, saying no, I'm not going to retract the apology, and actually addressing it to law students, people who are going to go and have to defend all sorts of people out in the grown-up world, uh, said, no, you you need to be ready to hear things that you don't, don't like. And so a few things she put in her letter, um, she said that the law school is not going to take the form of having the school administration announce institutional positions. Um, they, and she also says, I believe that focus on actions as the hallmark of an inclusive environment can lead to an institutional orthodoxy. Two mm. very powerful statements and create an echo chamber. So she is essentially sort of pushing back on the idea that we all need to think the same when it comes to equity, diversity and inclusion and saying, no, that's not going to work. That is not going to work. I'm not going to stand up. As, a, as an institution and say, this is our view, this is the orthodoxy. And again, she re-emphasizes that that's particularly the case with, with law students. Isn't it, isn't it nice to see the adults back in the room? Yeah, that's the perfect phrase, Ben. When I read that letter, it was like that the windows had been opened and yeah. instead of someone capitulating and saying, oh, goodness me, yes, I apologize for this no platforming, uh, and I apologise for my apologi- apology. Yeah. Uh, she actually turned around and said, uh, no, Sod this off. is our view. Yeah. And interesting, all the way through the letter, certainly the, the preamble of the letter, she talked about what's called the the um, the heckler's veto, which was a new phrase to me, uh, which is when essentially uh, it's more an American thing because they have the First Amendment that the heckler has as much, uh, the person opposing, has as much right to free speech as the person who's talking. And there's been a lot of thought around this. And actually, you can't shut down. You you, you can't veto someone else's right to free speech by saying it's your own right to free speech. So I thought that was interesting. And she appeals to the First Amendment and to the fact we don't have a heckler's veto. Well, that that's... Um... Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. And that brings us all the way back to to Posey Parker, where you absolutely have the right to stand outside an event and protest and express your view. Um, and actually, I see that a speech by the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drakeford, was um, was protested by a women's rights activists. But instead of heckling him, they just stood at the front holding up signs saying things like protect women's spaces or whatever it was. Um, and they've made their views perfectly clear without interfering with his right to free speech. Whereas what happened to Posey Park and what happened to, to the judge in the Stanford case um, is that the, the heckler has been allowed to veto. That's right. 
yeah. the, the speech of uh, the speech of others. Um, yeah. But I think that the point about the First Amendment is is an interesting one because that, I mean, perhaps most famously protects the right to free speech, but it also establishes secularity that there is mm. a uh, limit on your um, your beliefs in that you can you can worship and manifest them and gather and all the rest of it but you can't impose your beliefs yeah through yeah. government or through political force of any kind on other people yeah. um and and i i don't i don't mean secularity in terms of 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 sort of religious debates about about religion and atheism but i think that what the woke movement has now is a profound lack of secularism or an understanding mm. of the fact that some spaces should be neutral that's um right. yes and, and, and interesting interesting the first amendment when you look at the wording it's so short yeah uh and, and it's it's also so old yeah it was in 1792 1793 it was soon after the declaration of independence and it's very brutally crisp and to the point and absolutely cuts out anyone saying oh well yeah free speech but only thus far um yeah. to so yeah i i think it's an interesting question there as to whether we do we need a first amendment um well, something yeah. for us to envy isn't it um but at least we can end with some good news that in american yes. universities there are at least some remaining adults who are pushing back because of course what happens in american universities within a few years it, it it's dictating what goes on in your hr department and what what social media contract you have to sign when you start your job and all the rest of it um so i'm afraid whether or not you're interested um in what's happening in american universities the people at american universities are interested in you and what you think and what you say um, indeed the, the winds blow east uh, yes. but, but I think the the, the difference that that difference between the American system and the UK system is interesting. You'd think it would always be that one system proves better than the other. I think it's fair to say sometimes our system seems to be more robust and sometimes the US system seems to be. But we'll, we'll sort of leave our listeners with that thought about do we need a First Amendment? And if we were to to think about a First Amendment, what what what? What would that be, and how 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 would we do it with all of our constitutional differences? Um, but yeah, that that's uh, our final topic for today. Uh, do you have anything else to add, Ben? No, I don't think so. I mean, we're, we're very keen to have more feedback, uh, good or bad. Mm. Any suggestions are welcome, and uh, perhaps it'd be interesting to hear from our American audience about the question of the First Amendment. Um, and uh, yeah, let us know your thoughts. You can contact us via our website. Our email address is uh, info at freespeechunion.org. Uh, we're very keen to hear from you. So thanks for listening.